Wasn't that a gift? It's a gift to sing. It's a gift to praise the Lord. And it's great to see uh, young and old praising him together. Can we just, for the glory of Jesus and the hard work of so many people, from sound technicians to Annie to everybody coming early, can we just praise the Lord together? Amen. Now, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to the book of Deuteronomy. That's in the beginning of the Bible, five books in, and we are finishing today our series on what's called the Pentateuch, that is a five-fold book, or it's called by others the Torah, which is the word that means instruction, or it's called, in the New Testament, it's called the law, um, but it's also more than the law. So these first five books, we've been in a series for the past... 15 or so weeks, and we conclude it today as we look at the study of the book of Deuteronomy. And so we're going to begin in Deuteronomy 29, but uh, we will be kind of all over the book and uh, in a lot of places as we kind of conclude, summarize these final words uh, of the Pentateuch. Uh, While you're turning there to Deuteronomy 29, I just want to help you uh, remember that at the turn of the year, we Every year in January, we do not only a vision series, but something that really just starts the year off to say, we need Jesus. We, we treasure him above all. That's what we are about. And so uh, you should get an email this week uh, as part of the TCC Church family that will include Bible reading plans and also new this year, a plan that we want to pray through all of our church uh, directory uh, four, three times a year, every quarter. Is that right? Yeah. So we, uh, we've mapped it out and you'll receive that in uh, an email this week so that we can begin to pray for each other on a regular systematic basis. But we want you just to begin thinking, um, where might you want to begin reading in the scriptures? And that way you can just make it a discipline and a practice to just spend time with the Lord day after day, because he promises to speak to us through his word. So you'll receive that this week. And thank to God for those who have worked to make that happen. Now we should be in Deuteronomy 29. I'm going to read and then pray and we'll dive right in. Deuteronomy 29, the words of God say this, and Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you've seen, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. And miraculously, adding that, but this is the intent. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandals have not worn off of your feet. You've not eaten bread and you've not drunk wine or strong drink. Why? That you may know that I am the Lord, your God. Let's pray. Father, you have been faithful. You are faithful now. You have been faithful in the past. And you will always be faithful. And so, Father, I pray that the echoes that reverberate in our hearts, in this room, in our city, and to the ends of the earth, is that Jesus Christ can be trusted. He loves us with an affection and with a sacrificial love that parallels no other love. 
And we are loved that we might love. And so today, I pray for those who have never trusted in Jesus, you would ignite a heart of love. Love for him and love for others. And for those who have trusted Jesus, they would be so secure, so bound up beautifully in your love and loving embrace for them that it just changes how we live moment by moment, day by day. Father, thank you for your promised presence. We acknowledge you're here. Move and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've thought about these words before I said them, so just know that. I love you. I love you. Some of you are like, you don't even know me. Don't throw those words around. Some of you, you've never heard those words said to you, or at least very few times, count on one hand. Others of you, you've heard them quite often, and they encourage you and they strengthen you. How can I say, I love you in this room? Well, the reason it's a little bit of category confusion is because in America, what it usually means to love somebody is it means there's romantic affection. That's not what I'm saying. It usually means that there's feelings in your heart that bend you towards a romantic affection. But biblical love is so much deeper. You hear in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. You go on to hear, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. I fail. But there's a love that never fails. A love that has been first given to me because of Jesus' faithful sacrifice in my place. And he says, I love you, Sean. And he begins to tell me through the scriptures that when we say, I love you, it is not simply just a feeling, but it's an affection combined with a choice. And sometimes you got to make the choice for the affection to come. And sometimes the affection helps you choose, but neither one or either way, it is love is a choice. I choose to be kind and patient, to be for your good, to care for your needs. Friends, I pray that you say I love you often. I pray that you hear it. I pray your kids hear it. I pray that children, you say it to your parents. I pray that marriages are filled with these words, I love you. I pray that our church family is filled with these words, words of affection, because they're words that say I choose to do sometimes what I don't feel. I love you. And the book of Deuteronomy, the end of the Pentateuch, our God uses Moses to say those three words to the people. I love you. I love you. And because I love you, I want what's best for you and I'm encouraging you to choose life. 
And when he looks at them and says that, he's meaning choose to listen to me and to love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The book of Deuteronomy could be summed up with our God saying, I love you. And so, as we look at this book today, as this five-fold book comes to a close in, the, in Deuteronomy, we should learn, we should learn what it means that our great God says, I love you. You're loved. And the book of Deuteronomy is broken up into three sections. First section, 1 to 11, is framed by this idea of listen and love. The second section is framed by the law. And the third section is framed by this charge to choose blessing and not cursing, to choose life and to go into the promised land. But in the first section, what happens is there is a looking backwards to see the love of God. And that's where I want to start. So we've been traveling a lot through these first five books of the Bible. And as we kind of dive in here at the end, what we remember is there was an exodus. The people were in slavery for over 400 years and they were delivered. They were delivered out of Egypt to enslave them and they were brought through by God's amazing grace through the Red Sea and they were brought to the foot of Mount Sinai. And it was there at Mount Sinai when God says, you're my treasured possession. I love you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. That is, I'm going, we're going to be in a relationship with each other, a relationship of presence and commitment. And when he gives this covenant, the foundation being that which you've known or you've heard of, the Ten Commandments, the people say, yes, I want to be in a relationship with you, Yahweh, this God. I want to be in a relationship with you. And yet it wasn't, but days later, While Moses is up on the mountain experiencing the presence of God in fire and cloud, the people are down at the base of the mountain and they're begging Aaron to make him a golden calf. And just as Adam and Eve fell and sinned by seeing something that was desirable and choosing it over against what God had said, so the entire people failed in the same way. They did what they thought was wise in their own eyes and they chose to worship a calf, an image. And they broke the very first two commands that was laid out in the covenant that they said, yeah, we're all in. No other gods before me, no graven images. And yet, you want to hear grace? Through Moses' pleading, God says, I love you. And I'm not going to give up on you so much so that I'm going to dwell in your midst because I want you to experience my presence. And so as the narrative comes to a grinding halt, we're looking at one year of Israel's life from Exodus 19 all the way to Numbers 10. You're looking at one year at the life of Israel. And God says in Exodus 25, I'm going to make a tabernacle, a sanctuary, a tent where I will dwell so that the people will experience my presence. God is so faithful. He is so kind. And what we see at the end of Exodus is when God indwells that tabernacle, Moses, who's been in the presence of God, you would imagine he was going to run right into that tent and be in the presence of God. But because now he's down at the bottom representing the people, he can't go in. You fast forward through the book of Leviticus and you get to the first of numbers and you realize 
somehow at the beginning of Numbers, he is now in the tent. He's now in the presence of God. And you wonder, how could he not go in? And now how can he go in? The book of Leviticus tells us. God in his amazing grace has made a way for sinful people to be in the presence of a holy God because he loves them. He's faithful. It's the whole book of Leviticus. It might seem kind of boring and filled with laws for you, but it's God making a way so that you would enjoy his presence. That's the message that the people of Israel would enjoy being with their God. Learn from the past. No matter how sinful No matter how jacked up and messed up your path, your story, your journey is, constantly over and over in the scriptures, he's saying, come to me, return to me. I love you. But when we dive into the book of Numbers, not only are we supposed to learn from the past because God is with his people, he chooses to be with his people and he loves his people, but we're supposed to learn from the past because sin leads to misery. The story of the first five books of the Bible not only communicate God's amazing faithfulness. Do you know when he communicates his name? He says, I'm gracious and merciful. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity to thousands of generations, but also bringing justice upon sin. Both of these have to be learned from in the past that God is faithful and he's known by being gracious and yet our sin brings misery and must have consequence. So when you dive into the book of Numbers, they're at the bottom of Mount Sinai and God says, it's time. It's time for me to take you into the promised land. The promise that I made to Abraham, you're going to get to go into this land. So he says, I'm going to take a census. He's going to number all the people and then he's going to organize the people. Note, that's where the book Numbers comes from. He's numbering the people and then they make a pattern of how the people should be organized so that then they can go through the wilderness to the promised land. Now, the Hebrew title for this very book is called Bamidbar. That means in the wilderness. So if the book of Numbers seems really mundane and boring, you can use Bamidbar and all of a sudden it gets exciting maybe. I don't know. But you're going through the wilderness to get through the promised land. Now, I want to show you a picture of how God said to organize the camp. This was how the camp was meant to be organized. And you basically see three different spheres. The outer area are the 12 tribes of Israel. That inner circle are the Levites. The Levites were like building maintenance for the tabernacle. Uniquely among the Levites were the tribe of Aaron. And they were the priests. And those priests We're supposed to do the work in the tabernacle, go into the presence of God for the people. And the two most notable ones were Moses and Aaron. And Moses more important than any because he would regularly go in and talk with God. So you have the outer area of the 12 tribes. You have the inner ring, which are the Levites. And then you have Moses and Aaron who got to go into the presence of God. Now what the book plays out is every one of those spheres sins. Every one of them. How do I know? How do you see it? You remember the story of the 12 tribes or the 12 spies? The 12 spies are representatives from the 12 tribes. They're standing at the edge of the promised land. They're told to go in, scout it out because God's going to give the land. They come back. Joshua and Caleb say, we can do this by the help of God. He's going to go before us. Let's go. They rally the troops. The pep talk doesn't work because 10 say these people are too big. 
we should not go into the land. They rebelled against God. He promised them he would take them. And instead they did what was wise in their own eyes. And God says, I will give you what you asked for. You will not go into the land and you will wander around for 40 years. Your generation will die, but your children will be the ones that go in. Devastating consequences that they never thought of. But they rebelled against the living God. The inner circle. You see in number 16 that these Levites who were supposed to take care of the tabernacle be this unique set apart people. The Levites, specifically the sons of Korah, they got jealous over Aaron. Jealousy rips your heart apart. I was reading an article the other day on the quarterback C.J. Stroud. I'm a Panthers fan, so some people feel like they should hate C.J. Stroud because Bryce Young is our quarterback and maybe we should have picked him. Some of you don't even know that drama and you're fine to not know it. I'm reading this article about this quarterback, C.J. Stroud, who is the quarterback of the Texans. He's a rookie. It talks about how he was raised by a single mom because his dad was imprisoned, incarcerated for life. And he tells this story of All his life, he was tempted, tempted to grow up with comparison, to be jealous over different people's lives. And his mama kept telling him this, comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. They're believers, and it is ultimately God will carry you. He has given you the life that he has given you. You live for him. He'll take care of you. Jealousy says the opposite. God will not take care of me. He has withheld good from me because it's different than somebody else's good. It rips apart your heart. And it hurts others. The sons of Korah were jealous that Aaron's family was chosen and they were not. And God punishes them because of their rebellion and their jealousy by the land swallowing them up. Some serious consequence. The inner ring has now sinned. And when you think things could not get much worse, you're going to wonder for 40 years. And then this entire part of the group of the Levites have now been swallowed up by the earth. You fast forward almost 40 years. And towards the end of this wandering, you see Moses. And what happens is there's a mirror story of the people complaining because they have no food. And Moses is tired. Why do these people keep complaining? Why do they keep coming to me and telling me it's my fault? And he's just frustrated. And God says, I'm going to give them the water that they need if you will speak to the rock. He's done this before, but the command before was strike the rock. Here he was told something different. Have you ever been told, feel like, okay, it's something different. Something different than I expected, but I know I've got to obey. This was Moses' test moment. Different than he thought. He was supposed to speak to the rock, and instead what you find is Moses strikes the rock, not once but twice, and he says, he says words that really show his dependence upon himself. Should we 
be bringing this water out of the rock? Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? He was not giving glory to God. He was not doing what God said. And here's God's summary in Numbers 20 verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me, you didn't trust me to uphold me and you didn't uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people. You didn't give me the credit and the glory. Therefore, you will not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. What are we supposed to learn from our past? We're supposed to learn that God has always been faithful, but we're also supposed to learn that sin is devastating and we should not do what is wise in our own eyes. We should trust him. The outer ring sinned, the inner ring sinned. Even the one that could go in and see God face to face in the tabernacle or in the tent sinned. And so you would expect God to be like, I'm done. I'm done with these people. And you know what the next story is? This small little narrative where the people face an enemy called the Canaanites and they walk right in and they say, God, I need your help. And you know what God does? He helps them. He delivers them. He gives them victory because our God is gracious. He says, I love you. How should you learn from your past? I don't know about you, but the weeks leading up to Christmas can be some of the most hectic weeks of the entire year. Do I get an amen? Students, it's like final exam week is horrible. How can anybody expect that this is a good way to learn that I'm going to cram for 10 exams, it feels like, in the span of a week and a half? Like, really, am I supposed to retain this mess and this is how we choose it to do education? But you know how it is. You're just facing these tests and it's too much. It's overwhelming. I'm exhausted. You stay up late. You wake up early. How in the world does this happen? It's not just for students. If you're going to take any time off, you feel like, okay, I've got to make up for this. I've got to get so much done so that I can actually take some time off. And you get overwhelmed, don't you? You get anxious. The more life you live, the more you begin to see some patterns, however. I took a lot of exams, a lot of final exams. I'm here to tell you. I made it through every one of them. Some of those moments were shining moments. Some of those moments were not. But I made it through. God was faithful. He didn't let me go. I've experienced a lot of busy weeks right before Christmas. I've been anxious about most of them. It hit me this year. Has God ever failed you? Has he ever let you go? Has the anxiety that captured you all week long did it ever help you and yet through this busy week I was able to reflect God has always been faithful sometimes he was faithful by giving me energy to do what I didn't think I could do other times it was amazing how I had this list of 30 things on the plate and he pulls many of them off and shows me I didn't have to do those right then. Sometimes he provided people to help. But in all times, he was with me and he was faithful. This is what the first part of Deuteronomy is trying to teach the people. 
Look at the past. God has been faithful and let it affect how you live in the present. He's been faithful. You do not need to fear because he is always with you. He does not abandon his people. He says, I love you and that means something. It means I choose to set my affection upon you and I will always carry you through. Trust him. So not only did the passage that I read at the beginning in Deuteronomy 29 point to the past, but it was meant to point to the past so that you would rehearse week in, week out, day in, day out. This is what the Lord does. It's who he is. He takes care of his people. But not only should we learn from the past, we should also listen and love. We should respond and now as we look at these three sections in Deuteronomy, we begin in this first section and you see these phrases, listen and love. I want you to hear the opening words of Deuteronomy. You hear this. It says, Deuteronomy chapter one, verses one to seven. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. And then in verse two, he says, it is 11 days journey from Horeb. Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. So this is where I get, it should have taken two weeks, namely 11 days, and instead it took 40 years. You see that? It's 11 days journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea, which is where the spies went out to go over the land. So it's right on the edge of the Jordan River, right on the edge of the promised land. And then you just read this kind of disorienting whiplash kind of change Verse 3, it should have taken 11 days. It took 40 years. And it says, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. And then in verse 5, we get the one sentence that explains the entire book. Verse 5, beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law. The whole book of Deuteronomy is an explanation. An explanation of all that God has been telling and doing in the people's lives. An explanation of what he's been doing to prepare them, to ready them to get into the promised land. And so this first section... Chapters 1 through 11 is a sermon. These are multiple sermons, all given in about four hours' time, five hours maybe, given to the people. I know that sounds exhausting. And this is a, these are sermons. He gives them to ready them for the promised land. And in these 11 chapters, the word love is used 12 times. As you're kind of going through, it's like, boop, 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 it's like the tick meter has hit right here in these first 11 chapters. I love you, 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 I love you. Now love, that's it. Also, there's one other word that is even more tense or more intense. It is the word listen. The word listen does not just mean let audio signals hit the ears. It is understood as hear and act. It's sometimes summarized as obey or take care. 
But it's more than just let things come into the ears. It is let it affect your heart and let you act. Listen occurs 35 times in these first 11 chapters. And in the entire book of Deuteronomy, 91 times. It's like, hello, McFly, you know, listen, love. This is where we are. Now, hear these words, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you. And that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. I want you to hear that heart of love. I want to bless you. So choose blessing. Choose life. And now, in a Jewish individual's mind, some of the most famous words in all of their Bible... It's known as the Shema. It would sound in their ears like Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Achad. Yes, they would spit at you like that. It is hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This was a prayer that they began to pray every morning and every evening. And it begins with that word, Shema, which means listen, take care. It's even formalized as this is the Shema prayer. Hear, obey. And he says, you shall teach these diligently to your children. Shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. It is this that you should give from generation to generation that you were created to love. So take heed. You've been loved. Now love. Love God. Love your neighbor. Listen. Obey. Now what's unique and interesting about this, why does he say the Lord your God, the Lord is one? Because they are getting ready to walk into the promised land filled with people that worship tons of other gods. And what is meant to set these people apart is that they worship the one God, Yahweh. It's meant to set them apart, totally different. And all the laws that we're getting ready to hear about in the second section are meant to not just be read in light of these are good laws, but they're also meant to be read in contrast to all the laws of the people that were in and around that area. To show that this one God is so unique, so special, so precious. Look at what he does for that people and it sets them apart as distinct. But before we go there, we need to hear. Hear the message. It's one thing to say love is in this passage and listen is in this passage, but just listen and receive what's happening in these scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 20 through 25. It says this When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Parents, you can testify to this. Your faith grows because your kids ask questions. This is one of the greatest gifts of working in Kids Treasuring Christ is that those kids, I guarantee you, will ask you questions that will stump you. And it will force you to think in simplistic terms about your own faith. 
And this is what's happening right here. What should happen when our kids ask us questions? God says, this is what you should say. Say to your son, your daughter, your children, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed us signs and wonders and great and grievous against uh, Egypt and against Pharaoh and all of his household before our eyes. And he brought us up from there that he might bring us in and give us a land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these things, to fear the Lord our God. Why? Look at that phrase. Do you view God like this? He gave those commands for our good always. That's simple. Kids, asking your parents a question. Why does God do this? It's for your good always. That he might preserve us alive as we are on this day. And it would be righteousness for us if we're careful to do all the commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded He wants our good. And so Moses promises that he's going to take them into the promised land. But they begin to think like, why? Why are you taking us into the promised land? God wants them to know why. One of my favorite passages in all scripture, Deuteronomy 7, chapter, verse 6. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 says this. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, although he's speaking of Israel here, the Pentateuch teaches us that his intent is that Israel would be a light to all the nations that they might trust him and receive all these promises. So when God's working for a people, this promise is not simply for Israel, but it talks about his heart that is for all people. And Peter even picks up on that when he says that the church is God's treasured possession. So with all that there, they begin to ask the question, why? Why did you choose us? Here's what God says. Verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Because you were the fewest of all people. Summary, it's not because you were good looking. It was not because you had strength. It was not because you were better than somebody else. Nothing external. This is good news. And yet America says this is horrible news. You are what you produce, says our world. Our culture tells you you are only valuable to the degree that you are better than your neighbor or that you can show return on investment. And God says, forget that. I love you. And why do I love you? Because I love you. That's his answer. Look. The Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest people of all. But it is because the Lord loves you. Do you hear what he just said? I set my love on you because I love you. Huh? I love you because I love you. Because it's my nature to love. Because you are the apple of my eye. I love you. And friends, let me fast forward. If you ever question whether he loves you, he sent his only son, his only son, 
to die in the place of sinners who said, I would rather have my own way. Forget you. You can't be trusted, God. And he says, I will go the distance for you. I will go the distance for you, not because you are more lovely than your neighbor, but because I love you. And he hung on a tree, a sinner's cursed death, so that anyone, anyone, every nation, tribe, and tongue, rich and poor, old and young, anyone, who would acknowledge and be honest that they're a sinner and they cannot fix their life. Anyone, the only requirement is honesty. I can't do it. And I trust that you can. He gave his only son. He died in the place so that through his shed blood, sinners might be made clean. And if you're just honest... That you can't get yourself to God, but that he came to you. And if you're honest that Jesus Christ paid it all and that he was raised from the dead, you will be rescued, saved, made new. Why does God love us? The mystery of mysteries, because he loves us. This is the book of Deuteronomy. He says, I love you. And right after he says, I love you, he wants you to be really clear that the fruit of being loved is loving because loved ones love. The fruit of being loved is loving. You don't love others in order to be loved. You love because you've been first loved. This is exactly what he's saying. And those who know they're loved, they will love and do what God says. You can't listen and obey without loving and you can't love without listening and obeying. That's why they're both here in tandem. Because you are loved, you will be obedient and you will love. But it's first because you've been loved. So this is the message of the book of Deuteronomy in that first section. And the second section moves forward. After he assures them of his love for them in the midst of their horrific sin. What you run into like a buzzsaw is a list of laws. I don't know if you've ever read through the Bible, but you are a champ if you get through Leviticus. Because it's like you're reading along, the story is golden, and then all of a sudden it's just like you just got fire hosed with a bunch of laws. And it's like, how does this apply? I don't get it. And you just want to give up. Well, Deuteronomy is shaped a little bit like you're reading some of the best sermons of the first five books of the Bible. Like it is glory. And it's like, this makes sense. I love it. And then it's like, you hit the brakes and all of a sudden laws are coming at you. Why? Chapter 12 to chapter 26, verse 15. Laws. Laws about how to worship. Laws about your leadership structure. Laws about justice in society. More laws about worship. Laws everywhere. Well, I think the summary sentence would be a sentence that I got from Tim Keller, which is this. God wants us to be distinct from the world for the world. Why are these laws here? That we might be distinct from the world for the world. And so what we find 
is that these laws are given and they, many of them have already been given earlier in the first four books. Why does he hit repeat? Because they're getting ready to go into a new context, a new cultural setting. And he is going to hit refresh on the laws to help them know how to live differently and distinctly from all the other people in the land. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the, and all the ites. Seven different uh, enemies that are going to have to be pushed out. They need to live differently. And so it's actually going to be a little hard to understand why he's given these laws. You might even read them and think, that's just kind of crazy talk. Like, it's kind of strict. But what it is, is these laws are given so that in contrast to the people who live in that land, this would stand out as the greatness and glory of God. Yahweh God, Israel's God, is so amazingly different than all the gods they're worshiping. And it would cause the nations to look and want their God. That's why the laws are given, distinct from the world for the world. But how are we supposed to read them? You just need to hit reminder on this one, is that you're not supposed to read these laws as laws given to you. These laws were given to the people of Israel getting ready to go into the promised land. But this might be kind of the deep end of the pool, but I'll give it in a sentence or two. And that is, however, the first five books of the Bible... They shape the entire message to be given to people way beyond the people ready to enter the promised land. The message of those first five books are given for generations way beyond the generation that's ready to go into the promised land. Such that they are meant to be read, but meditated on and wisdom taken from it. I was listening to a video on the Bible Project, and they, they made this homework assignment. I give it to you. In your own time, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9 quotes Deuteronomy 25. And what you will see is how Paul doesn't take the law as applying kind of literally to their moment in time, but takes the law as giving them wisdom for the here and now. And this is how we're supposed to read these laws. And that'll help instruct you as you read through the Bible in the future. Deep in the pullover, let's keep going. I want to show you just an example of what God is doing in the giving of these laws. I told you that these laws are on repeat, coming through in Deuteronomy. But he puts them on repeat to help explain them for the context in which they're going in. Deuteronomy chapter 4 is this beautiful example of him doing this. Deuteronomy chapter 4 says this. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. This watch yourselves is the word listen, shema. Pay attention. Obey. Watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image. Now, where have we heard that before? The Ten Commandments, right? It's the second one. This is what he does. He takes laws that have already been given and he explains them in further detail to help them know how to enter the promised land. You follow? Now watch what he does here. This is beautiful. So I'm going to talk about 
why not to make a carved image? And he says, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. (laughs) And then he tries to get rid of all loopholes. Well, what kind of figures? Don't make it after humanity, male or female. Okay, well, what about animals? Nope, don't make it after animals. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about animals. Don't make it after birds that fly in the air. He'll go on and talk about fish. Don't do that. And then he'll go on and he'll say, and also look up, look at the sky. Sun, stars. Don't make it in those images either. Don't worship them. Why would he do that? Because the people in the land, they did that. They worshiped animals, carved images of animals. They worshiped the sun God and the moon God. And he's saying, be different. I'm telling you why. Don't make a carved image because you must be distinct from the world for the world. Now here, this is fascinating and beautiful. Watch this. When I saw this, I got giddy. Look at verse 20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace. Now, what does he mean? How do you make a carved image? You take something and you put it in a furnace and you melt it down and then you form it in an image, right? He says, look, I have taken you, people, and brought you out of the iron furnace. When did you do that? I never went through an iron furnace. When I brought you out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Summary, don't make an image of all these things because you are my image. Don't worship this. Be my people. And by being a people who listen and love, you will stand out so distinctly, people will look on you and say, your God is amazing. We are in the image of God, created with value and dignity and significance and love. He says, I love you and I've given you purpose. Be my image. That's why he says we are a kingdom of priests We are people who are meant to communicate God to the people and communicate to God on behalf of the people. This is what Jesus says in his priestly prayer. Look at John 17 to put the punctuation mark on it. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, Jesus says, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. (laughs) Just sit there. Jesus wants your joy. How does that happen? Well, in a ton of ways, but one of them is this. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So friends, you might be hated by the world because you're more like Jesus than the world. Jesus says, it's okay, you should expect that. Be distinct from the world, but listen, Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So many want to say be distinct by not being in the world, by not loving the world. I'm not wanting you to be taken out, but I want you to be different when you're in. And so he says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake... Jesus says, I set myself apart. I am made holy. 
Basically, I'm going to die in their place to give them everything they need to be who they need to be in a world that hates me. The laws were given so that they would be distinct from the world for the world. And finally, what we need to see, not only are we to listen in love and be distinct from the world for the world, but God has made it so that we would have an alive, longing heart. On this side of heaven, our heart is meant to be a longing heart. Who is he addressing this message to? It's not the people who experienced the exodus walking through it. It's the children. It's the children of that generation. And they're longing to get in. How many of you are waiting for this week or just a few more days to be over till you have vacation or till Christmas comes? Some of you are longing. Some of you are dreading it. I get it. It's just a mixed world. But you know longing. You do. You know longing when your heart is broken and you wish that weren't the case. You know, longing when you are suffering and you wish that there were peace. And they are longing. And Moses says at the end of this section, he says, choose life. Choose blessing. Don't choose the path of being wise in your own eyes. Don't choose the path of curse. Don't walk in death. Walk in life. But there's a problem. Moses goes on to tell them that the problem is they will not obey. Talking about a pep talk that goes sideways. He ultimately tells them, choose life. You can do this, but you won't. And this is where Moses turns from priest to prophet when he accurately describes the future that will come. And he says, you're not going to obey And actually, you're going to be taken out of this land that I've given you. But if you return to me, you can be restored. Return. This is the message of the whole book of Deuteronomy, return. But he also says, what you need to return is a new heart. It's not a new setting. It's not a new circumstance. It's not a new relationship. It's not a new job. It's not a new financial situation. For your heart to bow to the living God, what you need is a new heart. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, you've been given that. All the supply you need, he is with you. Lean into him. For those of you who have not, that's why you're exhausted. You need a new heart. And listen to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 5 and 6. And the Lord your God After you've been exiled, this is when he's promised they're going to be away. And the Lord your God, he will bring you into the land if you turn that your fathers possess, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. It feels like a pretty awkward and weird phrase. But... What's he doing? Like he does all throughout these first five books. He's taking a a line and shooting all the way back to Genesis 17. And he's wanting you to pull all of that meaning into this phrase. Why was circumcision made a part of the covenant? Because in Genesis 16, Moses rebelled, or Abraham rebelled against God. He slept with Hagar, raped her against her own will, and sought to have his own way with her. 
And so circumcision was judgment and mercy. It was with the thing that you have sinned against me, it will now be cut. Judgment. But I will use it for my purposes to propel my promises to the end of the earth. What's he saying here? With the thing that you have rebelled most against me, your heart, I will cut it. I will bring death, but it actually will bring life. This is the image, both God's judgment and his mercy. What we need is a new heart. And so Moses, after 120 years, he gives the crown, so to speak, to Joshua, transfers the power. Moses then climbs the mountain and he gets to look out at the promised land, but he doesn't get to go in. And you might think that's horrible. And it is judgment. But guess what? Moses should not fear because he's going to a land that's far better than what his eyes were going to behold. Moses was looking out and then it says, and Moses died. And at that moment, Moses was ushered to a far better land in the presence of the living God. Not through veiled face, not with cloud and smoke, but staring right at Jesus face to face. And all of the things that burdened his shoulders were removed. Suffering was no more and he was there. And he was not at that moment feeling as if he was let down. At that moment, there was no shame. And he was in the presence of God, knowing his grace and love and forgiveness. And this is the promise that's meant to be held out for us. There is a better land. There is a better day. A new heavens and a new earth will come when we are fully in the presence of the living God. And so there's hope. The book of Deuteronomy ends with a cliffhanger and Moses died. And you're wondering, will the descendant of the woman come to defeat evil? How is God going to rescue through Abraham's family? How can a holy God be with rebellious people? How will God transform the hearts of the people like Deuteronomy 30? And you just get left off there. But it's left so that you would be longing. Longing for someone to make all those things right. And we know that one to be Jesus. And so trust him. He has come. He will come again. And over Christmas... He wants all of you and he loves you. And because you're loved, you can love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for dying, sending your son to die in our place. Thank you that you have loved us when we were unlovely. Thank you that you are with us and that you will never leave us. And so right now, as we take the Lord's Supper, I pray that we would confess that you love us and we would confess our sin to you. And we would ask you to make all wrongs right. Help us to learn from the past that you're faithful and that sin is horrible. Help us to walk in lives that obey and love. Help us to be distinct from the world for the world and give us hearts of longing for the day when you will make all wrongs right. Right now in this moment, let's take about 
just a few seconds to settle our hearts and to ask the Lord to do something in our hearts. Confess to him what the Lord has brought to your mind and receive his love in this moment. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper together.